I've had some real setbacks in my life, like everybody. And I think what I've always done is I've always tried to analyse what that setback was and take away the good out of the setback rather than the bad. And I think part of the resilience is actually being able to see something that might have been a real stumbling block for you, but turning it around and actually making it something positive in your life, you muster that courage and resilience to keep going. Welcome to Leading You. I'm your host, Julie Hyde, and in this space, we delve into the dynamic intersection of leadership and mindset. Join me as we uncover the essential tools and insights you need to sculpt your own success and lead a life you absolutely love. With me today is Anita Jacoby, and you might know Anita. She is renowned as one of Australia's most distinguished television producers. Anita has worked on some of the nation's most credible and cutting-edge programs, spanning all commercial networks as well as the ABC, SBS, and Foxtel. She has received four AFI Actor Awards, a Logie Award, a Human Rights Award, and the Asia Broadcasting Union Award. And she has recently published her book, Secrets Beyond the Screen, and is a notable advocate for women in leadership and particularly in media. So welcome, Anita. Oh, thank you, Julie. I always feel a bit embarrassed hearing somebody sort of spell out what you've done like that. It is incredible. And that's only part of it. So I'm really, really honored to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Julie. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. So Anita, to dive straight into it, you started at the ground level in media and you worked your way up to the very top. And you made it in what, you know, is very well known as a man's world. So I'd love to understand how you did that. When you did it too. (laughs) Well, uh, um, growing up professionally in the world of commercial television, uh, certainly in the 80s, particularly the 80s and the 90s, it was a very different culture then. It was, as you say, very much a man's world. There was a lot of bullying and harassment, sexual harassment. There was misogyny. It was everywhere. Thankfully, the industry's changed somewhat since then. But when you were young and female, it was a real eye-opener to be treated like that. And I, I've worked at all the commercial networks here in Australia. And I am talking about a different era in time. I think since the Me Too movement, people are much more aware about how you treat young women. But when I was growing up, you were just, you know, subject to a, a pretty appalling treatment, especially in commercial television, which was where I grew up. And I I soon learnt that really all I could do was be really good at my job or as good as I could possibly be at my job, be determined to make it work, which I was, and show people that I really knew what I was doing and therefore it shouldn't come down to gender, it should come down to how good you are at a job. That was my philosophy from a very young age because the kind of treatment that you were receiving was so completely unacceptable in some quarters, but you just have to push through it and survive. And hopefully it even thrive because that was the nature of commercial television in those days. Yeah, that's really interesting. As you say, you just need to push through it. Was there something that you anchored yourself to or people that you surrounded yourself with that enabled you to push through? Because some of it could be really traumatising 
back then. It's interesting you say that because in my day when I was growing up, there were no female role models in commercial television. And so I would have desperately wanted to anchor myself of somebody who was an influential role model. There were women working in senior positions in commercial television, but they were usually in publicity and promotions and programming. But in my area, which is actually making programs in the production area, there were no female role models for me to aspire to. So, in fact, they were a couple of men who became very influential as mentors, one of them being my father because he was very influential in my life. And another one was a very well-known businessman called Kevin Weldon who set up Paul Hamlin's publishing here in Australia. And Kevin Weldon really didn't see gender in that way. He just saw people that could do the job. And I worked with him at a very young age before I started in commercial television. And uh, Kevin, to a degree, empowered me to be who and what I am and to feel confident in myself. And I think they're gifts that you give to somebody when they're young and starting out in an industry which is pretty tough. Absolutely. And I love hearing stories like that because I worked in banking in the late 80s, early 90s and, you know, considered a man's world, definitely. But I had some really strong male role models, like people who really believed in me and empowered me to take the next step and just really focus on me and not the noise around. So I did push forward and I I did succeed. And so did you have any female role models? Yeah, so it was getting more so within the banking industry. But when when I made it to senior leadership, as an example, out of 21 of us at the leadership table, there was only three who were females. So the roles were very gender-specific. Females did particular roles and the men would take the more management roles. So it did, (laughs) it took a while to, to change. But did I have a female role model back then? I don't think I did until I actually did have a female manager. And then I thought, oh, wow, yeah, this is possible. Like you say, when when you can't see where you want to go, you don't necessarily believe that you can achieve it. No, that's right. That's right. Although I think if, if you've got the innate capacity to keep driving forward and to want to achieve, that it doesn't really matter whether you did have that female role model or your role model was male. It was a role model that you aspired to and they empowered you. I think they made you, I don't know about you, but I know Kevin Welder made me feel like my father did, that anything in life is possible. I love that. So would you say that Kevin empowering you like that, is that one of the most significant periods of your career or are there others where um, has been a really significant point where you really learnt something about yourself and and taken that forward? Well, interestingly with Kevin Weldon, when I started, it was as a marketing trainee that he'd uh, established a scheme at, at Paul Hamlin's for marketing trainees. We'd go out and sell books with our little minis in our uniforms. And I was 18 when I joined there. But I tell you, one exercise he gave all of us, which I have used right throughout my life and it's been so beneficial, what he did was he gave each of the eight marketing trainees a name of someone they had to reach out and interview. And in my case, and you come from banking, in my case, I was given Sir Robert Norman, who was then the managing director of the Bank of New South Wales, which is now Westpac, 
I was given his name and I had to ring his office, make an appointment to go and see Sir Robert Norman and spend some time interviewing and speaking with him. Well, when you're 18, bordering on 19, that's a really big thing to do in life. And so I went off. What I did was I did all my research on who he was, and you know, with the banking system, what I needed to know, as much as I could do. And he agreed to see me and I had an hour with him. And what that did for me was it set me in my course in life that anybody is accessible and that you should never be fearful of speaking to anybody in your life. And I've gone on to produce shows with Andrew Denton and Up Rope, do 60 Minutes, where I've met some of the world's most famous people from, you know, Bill Clinton to Sir David Attenborough to, you know, all over. And I've never been afraid of anybody that I've met because of this exercise that Kevin Weldon gave me when I was just 18. That is so amazing. I don't think I would have been able to do that when I was oh, yes, 18. You would, have. you would have. Because someone sent you that task and you think to yourself, I can do that. Of course I can do that. And, in fact, Sir Robert Norman turned out to be the most lovely, lovely bloke. I would have been there for more than an hour. And he gave me a beautiful coffee table book when I left to say thank you. You know, and it's sort of those people that encourage and endorse and make you feel like anything's possible, like Kevin did and like Sir Robert Norman did, make your world seem infinitely more possible, whatever your job or life is going to take you to. That is so brilliant and such a great experience for you to have had stepping into your career. So, yeah, the research. How did you do the research back before the days of the internet? I'm talking about 19... 79. So we didn't have laptops where we'd sit there. And what I'd do was I would talk to my father who was in business. Uh, he'd set up Sony in Australia. I had, what would you want to know? What should I ask him? I went and did some research. I, you know, went to one of the libraries and did some research, reading some of the newspapers, looking at the financial times of the day. I got the history of what the um, Bank of New South Wales was about. And then I just talked to him and asked him questions because if you're like a blotter, you can learn so much from other people. And that's what I've done throughout my life and my career, learn as much as I can from other people. Yes, and there's so much in that for people to take away because I think with social media now it can become a very daunting place when you want to reach out. It seems that so many people and particularly in Australia we tend to put people on a pedestal like they're right up here and we think that they're inaccessible but like you say if you just reach out and I have done that previously where I reached out to Brian Hartzer who was oh, yeah, CEO, yeah, yeah and um, asked him to be on the podcast and he said yes and I I was like a bit awestruck at first and but just your normal guy who has just gone on to achieve great things and he was very generous in what he shared through his experience and, you know, people will say yes, like you said yes to a podcast. So, Julie, I think what we tend to do is feel like we can't ask something of someone or can't, you know, go and have a coffee with someone. And in my experience, it's not hard to sit there and send somebody an email and say, I've really admired you for a long time. And I would love to have a coffee with you to get your advice or get your insights about X or Y. And in most cases, it's very hard for people to say no. Mm. It's rude. Yeah. And it's not generous. <laughs> no, that's right. And you find that people who are very successful, or a lot of people, are very generous. 
with their time. So, yes, some very awesome advice there, mm, Anita. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> For many of us. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. No, no, I really feel strongly about it because when people talk to me about approaching others for jobs and things, it's like, well, why don't you just write to somebody or why don't you approach them or, you know, and in most cases if you don't ask, you don't get and you don't know whether you would get. What would you do if you were confronted with a diagnosis that threatened your life? Would you continue to live as you are or would you make some big changes? That's what happened to me on the 6th of October in 2021. My life changed within a second forever. This moment was a catalyst for me to look deep within and assess if I was living a life I loved. I wasn't. I was tolerating too much of it. And now I've made big changes and I want to empower you with the choice to do the same. My second book, You Always Have a Choice, is now available and I share nine powerful strategies to let go of overwhelm and the relentless struggle and implement changes so you can lead a life you love. Head to youalwayshaveachoice.com.au to grab your copy. Yes, 100%, because um, something that really struck me when I was, you know, researching you was, you know, what you learnt from your late father, who, to quote you, taught me to rise above fearful setbacks and to find resilience and a safe and happy place in the world. And I think that is just so beautiful. And resilience is something that... A lot of people seem to be struggling with. I know ladies in organizations can get really frustrated because people don't seem to have the resilience to bounce back from setbacks, whether that be personal or professional. So you have shared a lot of tips in, in terms of how you have probably built resilience in terms of reaching out and having really positive experience from that. But is there any other tips that you can share in terms of how you have built your resilience to forge your way through challenge? I've had some real setbacks in my life, like everybody, both personally and professionally. And I think what I've always done is I've always tried to analyse what that setback was and take away the good out of the setback rather than the bad. And I think part of resilience is actually being able to see something that might have been a real stumbling block for you but turning it around and actually making it something positive in your life. And I, I do, I agree with you. I think a lot of people just fundamentally don't value who and what they are. So when they've got to um, actually develop resilience and demonstrate resilience, they can't find it. They can't muster it at a particular time in their lives. And I just think all of us bring something to the table, even if we have moments where we, as I said, stumble and things haven't gone our way. You do. You muster that courage and resilience to keep going. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned what my father, that quote about my father, and and you're referring to a book I wrote. I write at the end of that, I still try to emulate my father's example every day. And that is demonstrating resilience because in his life, there were a lot of reasons why he had to find resilience. And I'm not going to spell out all of that today. But I think resilience is one of the strongest elements that we should have as, as human beings. We can't control everything happening around us, so we've got to have resilience. 
100%. And um, there's change happening every day. We do. We need to adapt or we're going to be left behind. We're going to become irrelevant and we're going to live very unhappy lives, sort of wishing that things were different where you can create your own difference (laughs) in the world. Yes, yes, that's so true. We can only create so much of our path forward and then others determine what that path looks like. But what we can do is protect ourselves and make ourselves feel valued and, you know, worthwhile and also to, you know, develop resilience. I mean, I, I will swim for miles in terms of when I'm processing something, and which is part of my resilience too. It's going out and walking and enjoying nature and, you know, doing things that make you feel good feeds into how you feel about yourself, feeds in your, to your resilience and to be able to deal with those tough times in your life. And we all have them. Yeah, we do, 100%. I totally agree with that. In terms of moving your body, it is incredibly important and enables you to process I think, I believe, and there's been scientific research to support it as well, of course, but to actually to get out of the space, to get out into fresh air or, you know, into the water, just to move, you know, move your thoughts through as well because we can become stagnant so quickly. And, you know, I experienced a time when I had surgery where I couldn't do that, like I couldn't get out there and move, but it's finding something that's going to work for you. So I had to change my habit rather than sitting and going, oh, my God, I can't move. This is horrendous. Okay, so what can you do? Focus on what you can do rather than what you can't do. Exactly. And even just going for a walk, you can walk your way out of how you might have felt about something because you're looking around at the natural world, you're meeting people in the street, you're going for a coffee. Something as simple as that can be such a circuit breaker and just make make you feel more whole and more part of and engaged in the world. So I think there is some really simple devices you can do. Yes, totally agree. And thank you for sharing your tips as well. <laughs> so your beautiful father who is a strong role model for you and I totally resonate with that. So you, you have written your book, Secrets Beyond the Screen, which is a memoir about your father. So can you tell us a little bit about that and, you know, how difficult was that for you to write, you know, about your your father and he's not here with you anymore to answer questions? Well, thanks, Julie. Well, I should, you probably gathered from what I'm saying, my father was a very influential figure in my life. And I think father-daughter relationships can be extremely special. Not that mother-sons can't be special as well, but I think there's something about father-daughters that probably, you know, they're the first male that you really ever meet. And so it's a, it can often be a very special relationship. And he was very influential in my life and in my career. You know, he was all about encouraging me and to find courage and passion and to do what I wanted to do in life and be a great sounding board, which is what a a great parent is all about. And when he died, I felt there was nothing unresolved about our relationship. But many years passed and then all of a sudden I'm at a family dinner party and somebody mentions about an infamous court case uh, way before I was born involving my father. And um, as a journalist and as a producer and as just an inquiring human being, that led me on a path to find over nine years all this information I never knew about him. 
some of it good and some of it not so good and uh, some of it quite confronting. I would describe him as an international man of mystery. So in order to do this, I've found that it's been pretty painful. It's been quite difficult to uh, research a parent and then find out all this material that you never knew and finding out about it when they're long gone. So you've got a thousand questions and you can never get those questions answered. I would encourage anybody who watches this podcast and who has children or relatives to take the time to learn more about that relative or that parent or that child or whoever it is before they're gone because if you're like me, you can't ever find any answers to the questions, the thousands of questions I've got. I can never get answered by my father, why he did this, why he did that, you know, the relationships that he had, the lovers that he had, the you know, the stuff that happened in Nazi Germany when he was arrested by the Nazis. I mean, all of this, I can never speak to him again about it. And so that's deeply painful and uh, very, very difficult to reconcile. But you do because as a human being uh, we have resilience, as we've been talking about, and we move on. But I think all people should spend time with family members and close friends and find out about more about their lives before it's too late. Yeah, 100%. Like I wouldn't know about my grandfather's story and I probably don't know. I Well, I definitely don't know everything about my dad either. So if something came up and he's since passed, he passed last year and you know if something came up it'd be like why did you why what happened there why did, talk to me about that what was that experience like you know, why did you do that <laughs> exactly family to me are the most fascinating part of our lives they're eternally fascinating and all families have skeletons in their closet not just you know my father or I don't know about your dad or other families all families have them and I think what we do is we mechanically go through life, and especially with our parents, they're taking us to ballet or piano or whatever, and we never, ever explore their lives before you came on the scene. That's right. It's all about looking forward. Yes, and I think it is a very beautiful idea to, as you suggested, to sit down with family members and really understand their life because when you come to the funeral even, there can be gaps where you can't answer those questions. So I think it's a really important part of a person's history, of the family history, that you know, the family tree and uh, mm. where we've all come from. So once you found out all of this information and you had to work through a lot of it, you still chose to write the book. I did. I really wrestled because originally it was a, a family story, you know, the family history, but then I had this really conflicting, the more story I found out about him as a journalist and a television producer and knowing what stories are all about because I've told them forever, I realised I had this internal wrestle with being a daughter who was very protective of her father and then being a journalist and producer, knowing a really great story and do I publicly tell that story? And that wrestle went for a number of years before I finally finished it and it was published after nine years. So not everybody needs to spend that kind of time like I did. Yeah, no. We were talking before about it and you said that you're proud of it, which I think is the most important thing because once you've done, spent so much time on something and then you've you've got it together and it's been published that to feel proud of it and to tell your father's story in a way that feels authentic to you I think is really important. 
I'm proud of it because I've always been proud of my father and I was really proud of what he achieved and he built up a public company that was listed on the stock exchange even though he was a political refugee to Australia. And I'm proud that I can celebrate his story. I'm very proud of what he achieved, more so than proud of the book. And especially somebody that came prior to social media, everybody's a star these days and everybody has their fleeting moment of fame, you know, because of social media. But pre-social media, a lot of really worthwhile Australians were never recognised. Yeah, oh, totally, because we never heard about them. They were so humble. And that's where I get a lot of inspiration from too because you think, wow, if they can do that with the limited resources that they had at the time, then I can do (laughs) anything. I know. But but also you've got to think um, often refugees, particularly political refugees, come to a new country and they see only opportunity. And so they look for opportunity and they build on the opportunity. And I interviewed Carla Zampatti, for example, in this book uh, because she and my father were very close. And she, of course, came out from Italy uh, as a migrant, but she saw opportunity in Australia and she created what she created. Her success was because of leaving another country, coming here and seeing a land where there was plenty of opportunity. Yes, and again, there's definite power in those stories for all of us now. So, Anita, it's been so wonderful chatting with you today and we will share all the links on the podcast notes in terms of how people can buy your book and celebrate you and connect with you as well. So thank you so much for being part of Leading You. Oh, Julie, look, thank you for the opportunity. I would say if anybody reads reads my book, I always love receiving feedback because then it kind of makes you feel like this whole project and this whole nine years that I spent of my life on the side doing this has been worthwhile and that others see value in what you've done. Yes, totally agree with that. So please let Anita know what you've thought of the book. <laughs> thanks. Oh, thanks, Julie. Thank you very much. Pleasure. 